Let me have you take your Bibles and open them up this morning to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Next week, Lord willing, we will return to our study through the book of Romans, but for today, I will be looking at Psalm 130. As you're turning there, the book of Psalms is sometimes referred to as the songbook of Israel. It's referred to it by that name because that's what it is. And it, perhaps more than any other book, as it is filled with with poetry, um, it shows us ourselves. It shows us and reveals uh, fellow Christians, fellow believers in rapturous highs, basking in the blessings of the Lord, and to the, the valley of the shadow of death even. Places of despair, despairing even sometimes of, of the love of God and the presence of God. From prayers that the Lord would bless His people to prayers that God would utterly destroy His enemies. They're all here in the book of Psalms. All emotions present here. All worn like a heart on the sleeve of the various authors. And so the Psalms are particularly helpful for us because whatever our situation is, whatever trial we're going through, whatever blessing we're enjoying, we find ourselves here in the book of Psalms. And it's been helpful in that way for God's people throughout the ages as we go through those things that are in many ways similar to the emotions and the troubles of the psalmist. Many of the songs are sad, songs of despair, songs of great lamentation. In fact, the most common type of psalm is what's called the psalm of lamentation, of crying out to God. But there's a common theme that runs through all of the psalms, even through those psalms of lamentation, sometimes especially those types of psalms. And that common theme is hope in the Lord. Confidence that the Lord would bless His people, that He would not curse His people, that his face would shine upon them, that he would save them from their enemies, no matter how big or how strong or how many. Even the lament psalms, as I mentioned, typically end on a note of sustained or renewed hope in what God will do. The psalm that is before us this morning in Psalm 130 is part of a group of psalms that are known as songs of ascent. Ascent, or going up. They're called that because they are songs that would be recited or sung by the people as they came together, coming to Jerusalem on one of the three main feasts, particularly the pilgrim feasts of Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. As the people would go, as they would go up that uh, hill into the city of Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. And as we, this morning, Hebrews reminds us that as we come to worship, that we have come to Mount Zion. And as we have ascended to the hill of the Lord this morning, as we have joined in that great company of the redeemed before the throne of God this morning, coming together to rejoice and to worship, we encourage one another with this song. There's plenty of reason, too, for this psalm speaks of the 
that greatest of Christian duties and that greatest of Christian blessings, and that is that we hope in the Lord. Let's read it. Psalm 130, let me have you stand as we read God's Word together. Just eight short verses in this beautiful psalm. We hear this morning in Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth that though the grass fades away, that your word endures forever. And as you have promised us, Lord, your word does not go forth without you accomplishing what you have intended. And so we pray that you would work in us this morning as we hear these words. Lord, we pray that you would grant us and increase in us a sense of hope in you, O Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated again. This psalm is very crisply structured, but I want us to focus really this morning on what it teaches us, which is basically this. It teaches us that we should hope in the Lord, for in Him we have abundant redemption. And it teaches us us that through five things that we're going to look at this morning. The first is that this psalm teaches us to cry out to God. Specifically, to cry out to Him in times when it is most needful, in the midst of deep trouble for us. This will come as no surprise to anyone, but the Christian life is full of ups and downs. The Christian life is full of trouble. There are those mountaintops and there are those deep valleys that we all must go through, sometimes chasms, really. And they come in many forms. They come in times when we are weak. When we're weak in our faith, when we're weak in our commitment, when we're weak in our love, when we're weak in our, in our faith. We lack faith at times. If we're honest, we will admit that. These types of times come when we're in bouts of discouragement. Sometimes despair. Is anyone discouraged this morning? You know, we say when we come here uh, to, to stop thinking about all of the things going on out there, but think about them for just a moment. Is there one or two things going on in your life, going on in this world that are discouraging? I think we could lay a list out this morning. Sometimes it, it comes through testing this discouragement and our, our need for hope, our need to cry out for God comes through testing with regard to health. Maybe that test didn't come back great. 
Maybe you're feeling sick. Maybe you've gone through a difficult time of sickness. It comes through times of troubles with provision. Maybe we lose a job. Our finances are are in disarray. Any number of things. Maybe we've lost a loved one. Those types of loss also bring us to this place. There are people who have troubles in their marriages, in their relationships. There are people who, Christians, who struggle with apparent hopelessness from any number of sources. Well, it is out of such a chasm this morning that the psalmist writes this song, which opens with a plea to God in verses 1 and 2. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And like I say, it could be that one of you, more of you, are in a deep, such a deep place right now. The word here, depths, when he says out of the depths, speaks of an overwhelming deepness. It's a a word that used to describe deep waters. Psalm 69.2 says, I'd sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. And we read that and we think of even Jonah cast into the depths of the deep. A place, it says, where there is no foothold. If you've ever been wading in a lake or in the ocean and you're walking along and you step into a part, some part that you thought was shallow, only to suddenly find no bottom, and you're suddenly in over your head, as they say, you understand. It can be a very scary place, especially if you don't swim well. Back in the the beaches of Southern California where I grew up, we had to be careful of of riptides as well that could very quickly carry you from a place of sure footing out into places where there was no bottom, into very dangerous waters. And that's sort of the place of the psalmist here as he speaks this morning. But what the psalmist wants to teach us and is going to teach us is that we have a place of firm footing. A firm footing that will not disappear. Let us learn this morning from this psalm already, from these opening two verses, the proper course to take, which is what the psalmist does. The counsel from the psalmist's words are to us a remedy to our souls in such times. Because he says, out of the depths, what? I cry to you, O Lord. Whatever your need, Whatever your sorrow, whatever your weakness, whatever your sin, cry out to God from whatever depths you find yourself in. So even in the address here, we find a source of hope. We find that anchor for our souls. Even here, we are assured that we have an audience with God, that He will hear us. The psalmist is confident even as he is in the depths He cries out to God. And we are able to do that. We are able to cry. We know that He hears us. Or we can know that He hears us. Not because we're able to demand anything. 
We have an audience with God because the one that we come to is our covenant God. One who has joined himself to us and us to him. You know, if you've been in this congregation for any length of time, there in that first verse, when it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, that that is the word translating the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God specifically. Not just out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, really. Not just God, but my God. Not just God, but Father. Not just Creator to whom I owe all allegiance, but Redeemer who has brought me out of darkness into his light, who has promised that he will be my God and I will be his child. That is who we come to. It is out of that relationship that the psalmist is confident when he cries out to God, You, God, my covenant God, I'm coming to you. I'm crying to you, he says. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Hear my supplication. And you see, the psalmist speaks here from an even deeper depth than you might think. Because it's not a physical enemy that he is seeking relief from. It's not an enemy on his heels. It's not a feeling of despair in regard to some specific physical threat. He says, be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The cry of the humble, destitute sinner is, be merciful to me, a sinner. He cries out especially for mercy. And the next verse will reveal why. But before we get there, may I say that this is a plea that is becoming rarer and rarer in our time. In the church, a voice that is less often heard than it should be. Not because the need is any rarer. Not because man is evolving into a better creature than he was back when the psalmist wrote these words centuries before Christ. Not because the danger is any less, but because the recognition of the danger is so much less today. It's not that the, that the edge of the cliff is, is any farther away or that the fall off of that cliff is any less lethal, but because many are blindfolded to the danger, so rather than cry out for mercy, they skip blithely toward the edge and toward their own eternal doom. But the psalmist knows what is chasing him, as it were. He knows his state. He knows his danger. He knows his need. And he knows the only place to go for the remedy. And so he cries out to the God of the covenant who is mighty. And he cries out, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So that's the first thing that this psalm teaches us. It teaches us to cry out to God. It also teaches us to confess our guilt. That's the second thing, to confess our guilt. Because I've said that the psalmist recognizes that danger. I've said that many today don't. But we haven't yet said what it is. Notice then his words in verse 3. 
He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? His plea, his need for mercy is because of his sin. That's what's chasing him. His guilt. Not just imagined guilt, but real guilt. This is one of the most, of course, sobering truths in the universe. And one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture that we have here. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Who could stand? Consider these truths. First, God is holy. His standards, His law demands absolute adherence. It demands absolute holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Also, that God is just. In describing His nature to Moses, He says, as part of that, that I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Deuteronomy 32.4 Thirdly, God is omniscient. That is, He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And Job echoes that in Job 34.21. He says, His eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. And one more truth is that God does not forget. That would be a decrease in his knowledge. And his knowledge is perfect and complete and does not change. So if God is holy, God is just, God is omniscient, and God does not forget, that makes this question of the psalmist all the more troublesome. Because the answer is frighteningly apparent. If the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? Of course, the answer is no one. If God marks your iniquity today, if He keeps record of your sin, if He holds your sin against you, if He deals with you according to your sin, according to strict justice, you will not stand. If God does not, if He will not show mercy, then there is no hope. No hope for you. No hope for me. No hope for anyone. The only hope is to confess our guilt before God as the psalmist does, which is a sure remedy because of what else Psalm 130 teaches us to do. And that is the third thing to to hear, and that is to comprehend the mercy of God. That's what this psalm teaches us. To comprehend the mercy of God. For those like you and me who are befouled, who are stained, who are corrupted by sin, who are filthy with it. To comprehend the mercy of God towards sinners in Christ must be the greatest joy of our lives. The psalm says to God's people, rejoice in Him, hope in Him, because with Him there is forgiveness. Verse 4, 
but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What a relief after reading verse 3. But with you there is forgiveness. And as so often in, in the Psalms, this, this a, a remembrance, a recognition of the grace and the mercy of God is the hinge on which this psalm turns. But with you there is forgiveness. Do you feel the sweetness of that phrase? Do you, as you read verse 3 and see, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And you think of yourselves and you think of your guilt and of your sin. And then you come to verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Doesn't that thrill your heart? If, If it doesn't, I fear you've probably not yet experienced it. Because anyone who understands that must be thrilled by it. The depth of our sin is a deep, deep chasm, but the mercy of God is an unplumbable depth, a bottomless well of grace. Let me remind you of Isaiah's words from Isaiah 1.18. He said, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Later Isaiah said, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Paul said, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2.4 says that He has saved us because He is rich in mercy. Because, it says, of the great love with which He loved us. And one more, Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In Psalm 130, look down at verse 7 for just a moment. It says, With the Lord, in the middle of the verse, with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption, abundant redemption. There is, as the old kid's song says, there is a fountain flowing deep and wide, a fountain of mercy for any who will come to it. All right, one more. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call on you. That's the answer that we get. As we are taught to comprehend God's mercy. Now in a sense, to try to comprehend God's mercy, we might as well say to lasso the moon. But let us resolve this morning indeed in all of our lives as well as we can, as much as we can to to comprehend or to apprehend even if we can't comprehend to, to understand as much as we may the mercy of God for in Him there is forgiveness. To know, as Paul said, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let that be our quest. To know and to know how that forgiveness comes. 
a forgiveness that comes to any who will make supplication to him for it. For any who pray to him in faith in Jesus Christ and request it of him, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says. Jim read this morning from Colossians. And in verses 13 and 14 it says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And let me add one more thing here before we move on, and that is the purpose of this forgiveness, the purpose of this plenteous redemption that God gives. The forgiveness that we have in Christ, the purpose is not so that we can go out and continue to sin, not so that we can continue to sin that grace might increase, not so we can think that we can sin without consequence because we are God's children. Thinking that or living like that shows a misunderstanding and a, and a lack of possessing of this great salvation. Paul said, God forbid. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Security in our sin is not the purpose for which God grants forgiveness of sin in Christ. It is not the reason for which He offers such a great forgiveness. The purpose, rather, is given here right by the psalmist at the end of verse 4. He says that you may be feared. That's the purpose. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Your salvation, child of God, is so that you will love God. That you will honor God. That you will revere God and obey God and worship God and serve God as He deserves to be honored and revered and obeyed and worshipped and served. To magnify Him. Why did God make you in all things? For His glory. Why did God save you in all that He has saved? For his glory. So we are taught to cry out to God. We are taught to confess our guilt, to comprehend the mercy of God. Fourthly, we are taught to commit to hope in God. Because God has done this great thing, we have a basis for hope that he will do all that we need. Makes me think of this verse here in Romans 8, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things that we need, all protection that we need, all of his presence that we need through his word. You know, this is the response here of the psalmist to his confession and to his confidence in the mercy of God. It's there in verses 5 and 6. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Back there in verse 5, there are two different words for the word hope that are used. And they're used with emphasis here. The word wait that you see there twice in verse 5 means to wait for something with eager and confident expectations. And you know that confident expectation is the definition of hope as the Bible uses it. 
So it is to wait in hope. We could translate it, hope. And so verse 5 then could say, I hope for the Lord. My soul hopes, and in his word I hope. In what ways can we hope? What do we hope for? Well, his word tells us, as we know that we hope in his word, the word reveals to us all that we have to hope in. It reveals God's nature, how he is gracious, how he is merciful, how he is loving, and how his love caused him to send his son to die for us. It teaches us, his word does, that God gave his son. It teaches us that he sends his spirit to us. It teaches us that he cares for us. It teaches us the assurance of his will for us, his good will. It assures us of the good purpose in trials and tribulations. It assures us that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And it assures us of that great hope that we have in the return of Christ. I hope, my soul hopes, in your word I hope. The psalmist then is saying that in his distress, he confidently expects relief and comfort from the Lord. And we can do the same. We should do the same. But we do have to remember that part of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. Patience. We need patience. Sometimes God wants to test our patience and to stretch our patience and to build our patience. Remember, Paul says that one does not hope for what he sees, but for what he does not yet see. And though the word means hope, it carries the thought of oftentimes waiting for that hope. That's why it's translated wait. And so we learn that when we wait for demonstrations of God's mercy, we can wait in confidence. We can wait in confident expectations. We wait, therefore, in hope. We wait in assurance. But sometimes we have to wait. The posture of the the redeemed is often that of the, the Israelite on the night of the Passover with, with cloak tucked into their outer garments, ready to go, but waiting for the time that God said go. In verse 6, the psalmist tells us of the nature of the waiting, the nature of the hoping. In verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. He repeats it to emphasize it. Probably referring there to those who manned the watchtower of a city, particularly those on the the night shift. And the focus here is not on the the enemy so much that they're on the lookout for, but on how they anticipate the morning to come, the relief of their work, the end of their shift. It is with certainty, knowing that it comes, it is with anxiousness, greatly desiring for it to come soon. That is how we wait for the Lord. That is how we hope in the Lord, with great longing and great dependence and great assurance. The psalmist gives us a strong and beautiful picture here of hope in the midst of despair, particularly the despair of recognizing our sinfulness, 
and a hope that arises out of a knowledge of the mercy of the Lord. The psalmist prays that God will hear his supplication and is confident that he will. Why? Verse 5 says, because in his words, I hope. God's word is so wonderful. It is such a rich support for us. It's a support for the weak. It's a a strong tower. It is a light and a lamp. It is food for the soul. It is a divinely sharp sword. This is where our confidence rests in the sure and eternal Word of God and especially in the incarnate Word of God who is our hope and whose soon return Paul calls our blessed hope. So let's look at one final thing then that this psalm is meant to teach us today. And it flows out of the rest. We're taught to cry out to God and to confess our guilt and to comprehend the mercy of God and to commit to hope in God. Finally, it teaches us to commend this course to others. Notice how the psalmist concludes and summarizes his psalm here in verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Fellow people of God, Hope in the Lord. He says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He is so humbled by the the depth of his sin and by the forgiveness that is with God and so brought to a place of hope by these things that he that he waits on and waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, that he then turns to his fellow Israelites and says, Israelites, brothers, sisters, hope in the Lord with me. Hope in the Lord. It is the most logical, the most obedient, the most helpful thing in all the world to do, Christian, to hope in the Lord. Why? Well, verse 7 says, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plenteous plentiful redemption. It says, with the Lord there is steadfast love. That is that glorious, rich word, chesed. The covenantal faithfulness of the covenantal God that he cried out to at the beginning of the song. That loving kindness of God shown towards those whom he stoops to save through Christ. Steadfast, unfailing love shown to sinners. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, as we opened our service with this morning, so that we may receive grace, receive mercy, and find grace to help in our time of need. We come to God with confidence, the confidence that arises out of our forgiveness and assurance of our acceptance at His throne. We come with the assurance that He has bound us to Him and himself to us. We come that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we need mercy, don't we, congregation? We need help. We need pardon. We need grace. We need to have our sins wiped out. And Christian, you have all of those things. You have all of those things given to you in the covenant of grace of which you are a part. Encourage one another with those words. 
And he says, and with him is plentiful redemption. Redemption full and free. How full? He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The author says, and that is what we have in Christ. Through his life and death, we have redemption from all of our sins. With you, O God, there is forgiveness. Do you hope in the Lord this morning? Are you waiting on the Lord in hope, in confident expectation that he will do what he promises, that he will work everything for your ultimate good? Do you hope in his promises? Are you content to remain, or are you content to remain in the depths of despair and the depths of sin? As so often in the Psalms, especially these lament Psalms, you see the the difference between the psalmist at the beginning of the psalm, crying out to God out of the depths, and the psalmist at the end of the psalm, encouraging others to hope in God as he does. The difference between the two is the realization that if the Lord should mark iniquities, none should stand, but with you there is forgiveness. That's the difference. The great and glorious promises of the gospel of Christ is our hope. And we receive this great hope and this fabulous and necessary encouragement every week when we ascend to Mount Zion, as it were, as we ascend the hill of the Lord, as we come into his covenantal presence as we meet together, as we are reminded through word and sacrament of the mercy of Christ towards sinners. Let us rejoice in that Christian and let us each therefore hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that we have in you and that it is a a sure hope. There is no reason to, to doubt for you are a covenant God. And we thank you that you have given to us plenteous redemption. That you have given to us forgiveness. That you do not mark our iniquities. That you do not count our sins against us. But that you have given us forgiveness and that you have given us Christ. And we pray that we would hope in you and hope in that. And we ask it in his name. Amen.